Well, I invite you to go ahead and turn in your Bible to John chapter 18. Uh, we, we have spent the, the last couple of months, I believe, uh, in the upper room discourse. Uh, enough Sundays that we might have forgotten that all of those chapters happened in one evening. Uh, we could have done it all in one sermon. You guys would have been here for like 12 hours. It would have been a marathon session. So, uh, but now we're on the other side of the upper room discourse. So go ahead and turn in your Bible to John chapter 18. This morning we're reading uh, the first 14 verses. So give your attention to the reading of God's word for his glory and for our edification. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So the band of soldiers and the captain and the officers of the Judeans arrested Jesus and bound him. First they led him to Annas, for he was the father-in-law of Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, it was Caiaphas who advised the Judeans that it would be expedient that one man should die for the people. The grass withers, the flower fades, the word of God endures forever. Uh, So I'd like you to think of something in your life that has gone wrong, desperately wrong. Uh, Something that you would change in a heartbeat if you could. Uh, And it's difficult, isn't it, to see that same event as part of the wise and sovereign counsel and working of God. And we're at the point now in John's gospel where, from the perspective of the disciples, things seem to go desperately wrong. 
So in chapters 1 through 12, we had Jesus' public ministry and uh, those great messianic signs. Uh, in 12 through 17, Jesus withdrew with his disciples into that upper room, 13 through 17 really, uh, for teaching and for prayer. And now in chapters 18 and on, we've got Jesus' betrayal, his arrest, his trial, and his crucifixion. Uh, And I hope that what we'll see is that if God is ruling here over these things, using them as part of his perfect plan, uh, he's also ruling in your life no matter what is happening, and you can entrust yourself to him. Uh, So we're going to look at these first uh, 14 verses or so this morning, and I just want to look at three things from uh, this passage, um, you know, three things that start with the letter S, pastoral hat trick, yes. Uh, Jesus' sovereignty, Jesus' substitution, and Jesus' submission. Uh, so let's, let's start with Jesus' sovereignty. As chapter 18 opens, we read, When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the Kidron Valley where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So we're going to come back to Jesus' journey over the Kidron later, which is important for its own reasons. For now, note that he goes with his disciples to a garden, maybe actually an olive grove. Verse 2 tells us it was a place that Jesus often met with his disciples. It was a familiar hangout. And I think as everyone instinctively knows, if people are hunting you, If the authorities are looking for you, where don't you want to be? You don't want to be in the places you normally frequent, where they're likely to come looking. And sure enough, that's what happens in verse 3. Judas, who is part of the inner circle, knew Jesus favored this spot with his disciples. Judas comes to the garden. He brings both a Roman force and a Judean one, and they come with lamps and torches and swords, and in my head this is like a big scene out of Braveheart or something where they're kind of marching on this garden. And verse 4 begins, Jesus knowing all that would happen to him. Which doesn't mean Jesus is thinking to himself, oh, I see what's about to happen here. You know, that he's out of options. Uh, that, that there's no other options for him to turn to. Rather, back in chapter 13, Jesus announced he would be betrayed. He dipped the morsel of bread into the bowl with Judas, indicating he was the betrayer. He said to Judas, what you are going to do, do it quickly. And then he goes to a place where he knows Judas can find him. Jesus is not hiding from this moment. He's not avoiding this moment. In his sovereign knowledge, nothing is catching him unaware. And it's interesting because where the other Gospels really have Judas identifying Jesus with that kiss, John has Judas, or sorry, John has Jesus identifying himself. In verse 5, he comes out and he asks, Who are you seeking? And when they answer, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus reveals himself uh, in the ESV. It says, I am he, which I think we're likely to read as like, that's me, I'm that guy. 
But of course, on another level, uh, this identification is nothing less uh, than Jesus revealing his identity as being one with the God of Israel. Uh, When God appeared to Moses in the burning bush and sent him to Israel, he said, tell the people, I am sent you. And throughout John, Jesus has been uh, taking that name upon himself to indicate his oneness with the God of Israel. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. Before Abraham was, I am. Uh, And as Jesus reveals this divine identity, look at what happens in verse 6. We read that when Jesus said it to them, uh, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Uh, which is not, uh, as, some, as some people want to explain, that the Roman soldiers and the temple police were so expecting Jesus to make a run for it that when he identified himself, they just fell backwards in surprise and shock. Uh, we don't know exactly what happened. Uh, we don't have all the data of what we would like to know, but what we do know is this is what happens when people are confronted with divine majesty. They fall to the ground, and I, I like the commentator who makes the comment uh, that their reaction is a reflection not of their hearts, but of Jesus' majesty. Uh, we're getting a little preview here of Philippians 2, when every knee bows uh, before Jesus. And for a moment, Jesus' true status comes to light, and the armed mass is revealed for what they really are, powerless. Uh, so as you're reading this, who is in control here? Jesus is not the victim of events, John chapter 10, 18. No one takes his life from him. He lays it down willingly. And John is showing us Jesus is in complete control over everything that happens. Uh, Just say that to yourself this morning. Jesus is in complete control of everything that happens. Uh, There are times when it looks like the world is out of control. Jesus remains in sovereign control. He's on the throne. He's working everything out to achieve the Father's purposes. Uh, So that's his sovereign rule. Uh, Let's talk about Jesus' substitution a little bit. Uh, So Jesus, in verse 6, provides this small glimpse of his glory. Uh, Jesus doesn't pour out his glory in uh, overpowering, uh, in an overpowering way uh, that destroys his enemies, uh, which is what, I think if we're honest, like I and maybe most of us would do, right? Full-on Indiana Jones, Raiders of the Lost Ark, final scene, glory that melts the Nazis, you know, the whole thing. Okay, that's done, guys. Now let's go back to the garden and hang out, you you know, or whatever. Uh, Instead, Jesus has revealed a glimpse of his glory, but now he's going to reveal that in his glory, he's giving himself as a substitute. So Jesus actually asked the same question twice in this passage. Uh, Whom do you seek? And the first time, in verses 4 to 6, Jesus displays his sovereign power. But in the second time, in verses 7 to 8, he actually displays his sovereign 
love. Because Jesus makes an offer in verse 8. Jesus says, "Uh, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Uh, Leave my disciples unharmed in the hour of his betrayal. Uh, Who is Jesus thinking about? Uh, He's showing his deep concern for the disciples. And and if you pay attention to the details of the passage, you see what's happening. Because in verse 4, we read that Jesus came out, or Jesus came forward to speak to the soldiers. He's actually putting himself in between the armed force and the disciples. Uh, a, a lot of people take this picture of the armed force and Jesus in the middle and, and the disciples in the garden. It may have been a walled garden or whatever. They take it as a reflection of the good shepherd guarding the sheepfold. Uh, the early church commentators uh, talked about how Jesus here is coming out of the garden as the second Adam to undo the work of the first Adam. Jesus steps forward to meet the enemy and give himself for his children. And I think that there are two reasons why we know uh, that people who reflect this way aren't reading too much into this imagery. And the first reason is because of the explanation that we get in verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Uh, So Jesus is not just saving the disciples from physical death in this moment. Uh, It's actually a symbol of what Jesus is about to do on the cross, ensure that none of his people are lost. Uh, And then down in verses 12 to 14, uh, we're reminded of what we first came across in chapter 11, that Caiaphas made that unwitting prophecy that it's expedient for one man to die for the nation. Uh, and of course, Caiaphas is thinking to himself, let this guy die, you know, so the nation can move forward. He didn't realize uh, that was exactly why Jesus had come. Uh, it's why Jesus submits to everything that is happening here, which is the third thing we want to look at, which is Jesus' submission. Uh, Jesus is willing to give himself For the disciples, no doubt the authorities are happy to be able to take Jesus without a struggle. Uh, There's one person who's not particularly happy about this plan of Jesus and his sovereignty submitting to what's going on. uh, And that is Peter. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. Uh, I don't think we're supposed to see Peter here as brave. Uh, By the way, if you're right-handed, think about how hard it is to cut off someone else's right ear unless you are standing behind them. So I don't know. Peter could have been a lefty. You you know, we have a few lefties here who might argue that. But, uh, you know, I don't think we're supposed to see Peter here as being particularly brave, uh, maybe impetuous given that he's wildly outnumbered, but mostly we're supposed to see that he is uncomprehending when it comes to the nature of Jesus' mission and kingdom. 
Uh, and I think that it's interesting that Peter here is actually not much different than Judas, both of whom think that these kinds of matters can be sorted out with torches and swords. He looks a lot more in this moment like the forces of darkness than the Lord who is willing to walk on the way of the cross. So uh, Jesus does not need Peter's help. We know from other Gospels, Jesus takes that ear and heals Malchus, the servant. What John focuses on is actually Jesus' rebuke to Peter in verse 11. It's got two parts. Put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Put your sword in its sheath. Violence is never obedience to Christ. Violence has never served Jesus' cause. Violence is hurtful to Jesus' cause. Violence is a denial of Jesus' cause. I I like the comment of Dale Bruner here. The arrest story teaches two ways to deny Jesus. By handing him over to his enemies, as Judas just did, and as overly liberal, weak Christological theology has done through the centuries, or by defending him too violently, as Peter now does, and as overly conservative or militant Christianity has done through the centuries. Violence is never obedience to Christ who says, put your sword in its sheath. And then the other part of the rebuke, shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So Jesus is rejecting the way of the sword for the way of the cup. And uh, you can think of a cup as someone's portion. Uh, We might say it's your destiny, it's You know, you're getting your desserts or whatever. In the prophets, you read about the cup of God's anger, the cup of his wrath, or the cup of staggering. Uh, We're all filling up a cup, the prophets would say. Uh, And the contents of that cup are not going to evaporate on their own, no matter how long you leave it out there. Uh, For it to become empty, someone must drink it. And so Jesus takes our cup, he takes our portion, He takes what's rightly coming to us, and he drinks it. That's his work, to drink the cup of wrath to the dregs, to make God's enemies into his friends. Uh, And I just want to tie all of this back to this seemingly insignificant detail in the beginning, that when Jesus left the upper room, he went outside the city gate, and he crossed over the Kidron Valley and went up, to the Mount of Olives, where the synoptics tell us this garden was. Uh, And I think that that's significant because Jesus was not the first one to make this journey. Uh, If you go back and you read the story of David, David made a journey over the Kidron after he had been betrayed. He had been betrayed by one of his own counselors, his own inner band, Ahithophel. And so he took his own journey of sorrow and humiliation. So that's what this 
journey out of the city and over the Kidron and up to the garden is in the Bible. It's a journey of sorrow and humiliation. And David made that journey, if you remember the Bible story, because of his own sin. Jesus is taking this journey for our sin. He's willingly submitting to it. He's taking the cup for us. He submits to the Father's plan. Uh, He doesn't call down fire from heaven, which he could have. Look at verse 12. So the band of soldiers and their captain and the officers of the Judeans arrested Jesus and bound him. Uh, Think about that for a second. The one who in his eternal glory is literally unbounded by space and by time, he allows himself to be bound and taken prisoner and led away. Uh, He has this deep trust in the Father's goodness and love and purposes. Uh, And so I I just want to come back to where we started, where I asked you to think about something that seemed out of control in your life, something that seems to be going or has gone desperately wrong. And uh, I don't know what it is. Maybe nobody in this room knows what it is. Maybe it's marital or financial or parental. Maybe it's the loss of a spouse or a child or a job. We find our strength in weakness and we submit to what God has for us. And we put away the sword and all the weapons of the flesh and our attempts at control, and we pick up the cup, uh, which for us is not drinking the cup of wrath. For us, it's the cup of being conformed to the one who drank it for us. Uh, And if this is the way that Jesus rules, this is the way that we live under his rule. We recognize that his cause goes forward not by fighting, but by obedient submission. Not by overpowering, but by self-giving. And it just seems like this is a good season to ask. Will the church at large and will our church believe this? Uh, Because if we do, it will change the way that we live. Uh, And I'm sure we all have places where uh, we are using the sword, metaphorically, I hope not literally. We're trying to get our way. We're trying to seek a little bit of vengeance. We're trying to overpower other people, but do it sort of with spiritual language so that it looks holy. Maybe we're seeing unbelievers as enemies to be defeated rather than people to be friended and served so they can see the light of Christ. Uh, So I just want you to see again this morning, Jesus is in full control. Nothing takes him by surprise. Not his arrest, not Judas' betrayal, not his being bound, not anything that is happening in your life. And as he submitted himself to the Father, we can submit ourselves to the same Father as well and be assured God has provided for us a substitute to stand in between us and death, between us and judgment. And God has come in that person of his son, the great I am, to drink the cup of wrath to the bottom for you and for me. Amen?
Let's pray together.